Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's largest and best talk health radio station. Um, my name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, CEOs and founders who are driving the healthcare revolution in the UK and beyond. I'm a CEO and founder of a health tech company myself and I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Before we start the show, um, as always, I'd like to remind everyone to follow us on the socials. It's at Health Tech Hour. And also please follow the, sh- uh, follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio, to stay on top of all of the great content from all of the other shows, not just this show. A um, couple of other bits I want to mention at the top of the show. So Health Tech Hour, this show, uh, was, was included last week in the best tech- technology podcast in the UK. Um, big, big thanks to Hex Digital for pulling that list together. Uh, we're listed alongside such other people as Ted, Ted Talks, and Tim Ferriss, the Naked Scientist, and Reid Hoffman, who was one of the founders of LinkedIn. So huge accolade for us to be included in that list, this show. And thank you very much for everyone for listening. I'm sure we wouldn't be there if it wasn't such a popular show. So thank you very much for that. The second thing I want to mention is Johan, station owner Johan, um, an all-round fantastic human, ran his first half marathon last weekend. I don't know if he's still with us. He's running the desk today, so he might have popped out. But I want to say, well done, Johan. Um, I don't think he's there, but maybe he'll come back in later and give us, a, give us an update on how that was. So today's show, I'm super excited about today's show. I guess I'm always excited about today's show, but I am particularly excited about this show because we're speaking to the fantastically accomplished Lauren Gresser, CEO and founder of DemDX which, in her words, is a certified AI clinical reasoning platform that helps frontline medical professionals diagnose and treat patients faster. We will, as always, delve into exactly what that means and what that kind of relates to on a patient level um, as we go through the show. The platform DemDX has won many, many awards. It has over 1.5 million clinical pathways uh, included in it and takes uh, information from over 200 medical experts. DemDX has partnerships across the NHS uh, and including Harvard Medical School. Uh, Lauren herself is also a huge supporter of women in technology, which is actually something that my company PocDoc takes very seriously. Um, and and my, my co-founder Kieran and the medical director from DemDX are actually nominated for the same Women in Technology Award. So that could be a little bit awkward depending upon who, who wins that. Um, so with the increasing digitization of healthcare, services like DemDX are becoming ever more important. And we've, we've, we've covered a few things, not exactly the same as DemDX, but the same kind of concept, which is post-pandemic, this was happening pre-pandemic, but particularly now post-pandemic, the acceleration of the digitization of healthcare is, is happening significantly faster. And so services like DemDX are really at the front line of, of, of the development of healthcare systems and the better treatment, improving treatments of patients. So let's get into the show. Lauren, how are you? I'm um, very well. Obviously, delighted to be here and talking to you. And congratulations uh, 
for all the uh, achievements for the UK Health Radio. Fantastic achievement. Yeah, it's crazy. We only started this should start the show less than a year ago, and we already broke the one million listener barrier. So it's um, yeah, it's good. It's going well. It, it, to be honest with you, if we didn't have guests like you coming on, we would would just be me and Johan kind of talking for an hour, which wouldn't be as wouldn't be as interesting. Um, so what is it like right now at DMDX? What's the mood in the camp? Are you back to kind of what you were doing pre-pandemic? Has it completely changed or like? What's the kind of, I don't know, what's the summary, I guess? Um, definitely things have picked up. Um, I'm, I'm not sure where we all stand with, with the pandemic and if we're still in the middle of it or coming out of it or going back into it. But yeah. definitely people, um, you know, obviously for any innovation like ours, it's really important to be very, very close and stay close to the users. So for us, it's about staying close to the all the clinicians at the front line. We'll talk a bit more about who are sort of obvious and, and, and key users are, but effectively they are, you know, nurse practitioners, occupational therapists, or all these words that we use in terms of allied healthcare professionals that are really are at the coalface. So they've been rather busy in the last two years. Yeah. So hard to get share of share of time and a share of mind um uh but uh, you know so but it's it's also been wonderful to sort of talk to them over this period and and see what they've been living through as with everyone else but um so yeah so now back on track and and getting really engaged with with increased usage good well as everyone listening knows the show is generally we do it in three parts the first part is an origins part of how you became to be doing all of the incredible stuff that you're doing The middle part is all of the incredible stuff that you and DemDX is doing to change the world. And then the final bit is really more around what's the future for you. And, you know, I know that obviously women in healthcare, women in technology and promoting that is a big topic. So if we can get to that, that would be a good, a a good, a good way to kind of end on as well. So um, at what point did you make the decision to become a doctor? Because you, you originally qualified as a doctor, is that correct? Yes. So I, I came to medicine really late and that's probably an important trigger of of the creation of of demdx so i'd done i i'd done previously a career in in sort of business finance and other sectors and then decided what i really wanted to do when i grew up was to be a doctor so i went back into medicine in my mid-30s um, and it was during the training that sort of two things happened one is a i suppose a, a personal journey for myself which is you realize as you get into the field of, of, of medicine and it's just an unbelievable, it was an unbelievable privilege to, to, to have that level of education and exposure, but you realize that you are doing this Sherlock Holmes all the time and you're constantly managing a, a list of questioning and, and engaging with the patient and, and, and have, being able to sort of obviously show empathy and connection, but also constantly running through what could this be? How serious is it? What test should I be doing? And fundamentally trying to drive through what the end condition could be. And as I was going through through medical school, I was finding that challenge of switching from learning the theory of a condition to then putting it into practice. Um, so the principle of the platform, the DEMDX stands for Demonstrating Diagnostics. Um, and it was really about helping any clinician, and I mean that with, in the, with the widest term possible. So anyone who's at the front line who is assessing a patient and looking to give them the right first level of triage or onward referral uh, how do they navigate that because it's unbelievably complicated um and then the second thing is when as part of my training i was out with a community nurse um and seeing a patient who was clearly unwell and the sort of nurse was pretty confident uh, of what to do uh, but the because of the protocols there locally um 
they were sent to hospital. This was an elderly patient who most likely just had a urinary tract infection that could have been treated and avoiding all of that uh, you know, transport to A&E, the discomfort that meant to them, but the waiting time that meant to them, but obviously also the cost of the system. So the sort of personal genesis and journey, as well as that professional experience, really came together with the creation of DEMDX, which basically is supporting frontline staff in their clinical decision making and giving them the confidence and the, the sort of autonomy to make to make those decisions. Okay, so did you have a pre-existing interest? We'll get into all of the details around around the product. Don't worry, we've got we've got we've got an hour. We'll get there. Don't worry. Well, um, with with, but I I think unless I'm wrong, you 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 had a kind of a science background at university, or you studied science and then did a business bit. So what was your sort of? We, did you always have medicine medical in in the mind somewhere? And, and, and you you were a scientist, and then you. So what what was that journey like? Yeah, I think probably a lot of people that go into medicine uh, or into the healthcare system, they've got some element of DNA or sort of family connection. So uh, my father was uh, was a sort of family physician and then also a researcher. Um, and I've always been attracted to science. Um, but like many people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my early 20s. So ended up sort of falling into a path, which was amazing and brilliant and taught me loads of things. Uh, but I think then you get it's going to sound so corny so apologies to all the listeners but you do get to a point in your life where you kind of think okay I've probably got another 30 years in it for me and how can I contribute and what would really make me personally happy quite selfishly you know what would make me excited about getting out of bed and and how can I really feel I've made a difference and be proud of you know my time so and that was actually it wasn't it was basically a list of one, which is actually what I really want to do is to be in the clinical setting. And then um, the, there are sort of various reasons why I ended up. So I followed the path, did medicine. So, yes, I suppose the reason I ended up in medicine was I'd I had always had an interest and an, a, an attraction to that field. I think it's an unbelievable privilege to be helping others and uh, and to being close to patients. And it gives you a perspective and a grounding that you probably don't get in any other profession, frankly. Um, and uh, and having sort of navigated different professional careers, um, I came back to my true the, the, my my true my true interest. Your true love. So what, um, when you were, you know, when you were in the, I don't know, wilderness, so to speak, or however you refer to it, of the corporate world, what, what, um, what were the, uh, if any, what lessons did you, did you, could you have done, do you think, the, 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 cor- the DemDX startup element without having done your stint in the corporate commercial world? And, and if so, what kind of lessons do you think that you've drawn from that, if any? Um, it's really hard isn't it to try and piecemeal what bits of your experience actually helped you in um in in creating something because I suppose it's a bit of everything um Mm. I I would actually interestingly say that I mean and you know this is for you to shout out and add to but one one of the things when when we talk about entrepreneurship that I found is 
it's so so much harder than you think uh, and when you go into it and it's got so many unexpected bounces in it and you know resilience and determination really just don't quite define what's required and I think I came to it you know I was quite mature already then and I had a lot of experience I think I came to it with this you know a, a level of confidence which quite frankly is probably misplaced in hindsight so you know if I'd known then what I know now uh, you know I would have probably I would have I would have done it with a lot more trepidation but I suppose there was an element of sort of confidence of my other experience would bring me something uh, whether it did an actual fact or not uh, you know is a question I mean I suppose I'm sure the planning the structure the organization the discipline um, understanding things quite quickly but I think probably most professional careers would bring you that I'm not sure that necessarily the purely corporate bit sure that makes sense no I agree I think that you know, there's, there's, um, I mean, I was lucky I did, you know, before the current company popped up, you know, I was involved with a previous startup that, that was quite successful. So I, you know, I'd, I'd been exposed for a really long time to all of the things that you just mentioned, which is, you know, the early stage chaos, the bumps in the road that, you know, the, the known unknowns, the unknown unknowns, and, you know, the, 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 the huge highs, the massive lows, um, the, the requirement for an unbelievable reservoir is, of, of resilience and positivity and you know the the huge buzz that you get from changing the world because no one's ever doing no one's ever done what you've done before and all this type of all of that stuff so I sort of you know I, I had already sort of been been through that so um you know this time around I wouldn't say it's I wouldn't say it's any easier um but at least I know sort of you know what's coming you know and there's not so much of a surprise I think for for some people when it's their first venture they sort of they get a bit shocked as to why stuff doesn't quite go according to plan, particularly if they've come from a more structured environment when they've always kind of been told what to do. And you know, there's always been a sort of a plan to follow. I mean, I think the thing that I fell in love with about working in early stage, you know, startup type environments was that you know, if I, I knew if I didn't show up to work, then there would be a big problem. That's a big hole. I mean, that, that wouldn't get that those things wouldn't get done. And those things are mission critical. So, you know, that obviously you have to move beyond that stage as quickly as you can to scale out so that you can cope with with with, with bumps in the road and you can scale and, and all of that kind of stuff. But that sort of immediacy and directness, which I, I guess in a way is sort of parallel to being a doctor in a sense i mean if you're not there that patient doesn't get treated if you can't see anyone that that that, that's a big problem yeah yeah yeah, absolutely so um yes so you're right the large corporate gives you a structure even if i mean i was relatively senior towards the end but you're right you have a team behind you and you've got this kind of structure and your worries are very different uh whereas when you're in the startup world you've got the beauty of flexibility complete and utter autonomy um but you know it's the you know for very for obvious reasons when you're dealing with corp if you're a startup and then dealing with corporate institutions or in our case collect both you and i uh you know we're dealing with the healthcare industry there are a lot of they're quite conservative so it's uh i think that's the third your third theme that you want us to cover but basically there are barriers to, to to adoption that's hard for innovators yeah, I would agree with that. And we can come on to like, you know, our sort of mutual experiences of the NHS and things like that as we get through the show. So um, when you became a doctor, when you decided to become a doctor, did you did you did you do that because you you wanted to become a doctor or you always had an inkling that there might be a business in there as well somewhere potentially? Or like what was the thinking there? Yeah, 100 percent. It was all about being a doctor. So okay. you could argue that, you know, I haven't been true. <laughs> and I, in fact, as I was setting up the business and I was very close to our 
are sort of the head of the head of the teaching as at King's uh, King's Medical School. Uh, they were they were really supportive, but they're saying, "Oh, it's such a shame. You really should be uh, you really should be a doctor." And I said, that, "That'll be my retirement plan." So yeah. who knows? I could be on this on yeah. this podcast yeah. in, a, in a few years' time, being a doctor in the clinical setting. But um, yeah, so that no, it definitely was. It was about being a doctor, being at the front line, and yeah. Uh, following that through um, and were you and were you were you intending to specialize in any particular area general practice or surgery or what were you intending so, to what were you yeah, planning on? I had um I had um I had a very clear plan well I wanted to become a pediatrician I had young kids at the time I still have slightly not as young but they were young then um and I have to say uh, a shout out to Pata Brown and Ahmed Asoud who are two just unbelievable inspiring clinicians one's a obstetrician gynecologist and the other is a, an amazing um pediatrician and i had come across them in my personal life but because of my medical interests you know they had been very patient in educating me quite frankly almost as a well as a patient and they just they it was you know they just gave me the 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 drive and I just couldn't stop. I was spending more time talking about learning from them than there was about them looking either at me or my my baby. So like, <laughs> I need I need to do this. And so yeah, so I, I was really to be a pediatrician. So did and w- w- how many um, people of because as you say you were like you didn't go and become a doctor straight out of your undergrad, right? This was sort of a, a decision that was taken after a period of time, which we don't have to go into the number of years, but it was sort of like a you know. It was you were a proper grown up when you decided to go and let's make it let's make it black and white. I was thirty eight years old, or wow, maybe I was okay. I'm not even sure. Okay, and like, were there was that? I'm just interested. Was were, were there other people? Is that that would strike me as a first glance to be a, some, a somewhat less common yeah, path I, to tread? I, was, but I don't know. Maybe that is common, and there are lots of people doing that. No, I was I was definitely the outlier. Uh, okay. So most of them were either doing a four year course, literally nineteen, and some were doing the three year. There were a few that were mature, which meant so I inverted commas for those that can't yeah. see it, which were like twenty five years old, and they yeah. were kind of over the hill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mature students. Twenty five. Times that I'd go in and people assumed I was the teacher, the consultant teacher, or the or the token patient, you know, enrollment. Oh wow. Did they get you? I, I'll, I'll ask a proper question after this. But this, this, what, what, did they manage to get you to the student union at all, or did you did you skip on that bit? I was I was definitely not part of the after party. <laughs> as soon as classes ended or the rotors were finished, I was kind of out of there. Okay, cool. Well, look. On that note, we are going to break for a couple of minutes to have some messages from the kind supporters of the station, and after that, we'll be right back to talk about how you transitioned from medical student into CEO of one of the leading health tech companies in the UK. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. How good are vitamin C supplements? Usually only a small proportion of vitamin C actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect. Whereas the high absorption levels of Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C help maintain optimal vitamin C levels in your body and strengthen your immune system. Now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? 
B-Cure Laser, a home-use CE-approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double-blind trial has shown that B-Cure Laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. To get your special B-Cure offer now, call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B-Cure Laser. B-Cure Laser. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Hi, welcome back to the show. This is Health Tech Hour with Lauren Gresser, CEO of DemDX. So before the break, we were just talking about how you um, started your medical career as a, you know, mature student, you know, um, and then, um, but while you were doing that, you, you had the idea for the business. So was that like an epiphany or was it a journey or how, how did that kind of come about? It was probably... Um... Uh, both right so I, I had struggled f- f- with this as I said the sort of this having to remember and run through the sort of a rolodex of complications on the one hand making sure that you have you're connecting with the patient whilst you know it feels like juggling plates and sort of I don't know driving car at the same time not quite but it is a really complicated process and protocols are being updated and guidelines are being reviewed and etc etc so it was something that I had all along struggled with because it is quite a harsh transition going from the sort of you know the 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 theory and the lecture hall to actually being in the clinical setting as part of your training Um, and then in our medical school they had the opportunity um, to to do a sort of a a research study or some some idea and it's really as part of that that I researched this and it was really at that point that I realized I was quite taken aback by by the fact it wasn't just me (laughs) I was sort of blaming the fact that I was rather old and slightly distracted with young kids I couldn't remember something things but actually this was something that was common to medical students it was coming common to sort of nursing students and and also it was actually common to those actually on the ground doing the clinical work and it was really well received by the consultants um so something that i thought was maybe a weakness actually transpired to 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 have kind of seemed to caught on to you know it was acknowledged externally I suppose as your first validation of of an idea are you going to make something is this has this got legs um and that was a a slight surprise and it's then that I had the light bulb moment so it was kind of time in 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 its development but then the external validation in inverted commas just very early on in terms of people that I respected who knew the knew the industry inside out they themselves were saying this is a really good idea uh, definitely was a real key turning point for me to say wow this is something that that can actually help okay and um so let's take the moment now explain to us all what demdx is and then i'll follow up with some questions but what how would you describe what it is and, and what it does so i describe demdx as it's it's an app that you can use a web app so you can use it on on the desktop or on your phone and it basically is your second opinion if you're a clinician. So if you're out in the community or you're in the clinic and you're seeing a patient, um, what is the process that you should go through What you know to make sure that you've done the right clinical assessment? So you've asked the right questions, you've done the right history taking, you've right, done the right examination. So it's this 
it's this reference point on the job that allows you to feel comfortable and confident that you've done the right thing for the patient. And why is that so important? Sounds like a silly question, but what, as in what was happening before, or if then if DEMDX isn't being used, what is the problem, potential problem? I mean, there are loads of potential problems. I mean, not least it's a really stressful job and really hard to do well. So, you know, it happens and it happens for all office reasons. But, you know, I might forget to ask about your history and to find out that actually A, B and C is happening or I forget to do the appropriate protocol. And that takes me on to to sort of sending you sending the patient one place versus another. And the most important decision for patient outcomes is the first decision. Okay. So getting that decision right sets the patient on the right path. Getting it wrong makes it much, much harder. And when I say it's hard to do things is that you've got not just the history taking, but as I said, you've got the the local protocols, national protocols, guidelines that you need to follow, calculators and assessments you need to to do. And so what's, what's currently happening is, or what was doing is it's, it's on you. Um, which is fine and you're trained for it, but you're also then having to look up the guidelines and you might have to look up the medical calculators or frankly, you have to ask a second opinion in often cases, which is absolutely the right thing to do if if you really don't know. So this is ultimately the decision stays with the clinician. But where we step in is this gap about, you know, it's like call a friend on, on who, who wants to be living in there. It's I'm, I'm kind of 60, 70 percent sure. I don't really want to disturb my colleague. I don't really want to have a patient wait while I go and find out because I'm pretty confident, but I'm just not 100 percent. And that's where we step in is we are that second opinion that just, you know, reiterates what you were probably already thinking. But also we're a platform that allows you to have all of the information that you need to make the appropriate assessment there and then. So rather than me Googling what my they literally Google what my local pathways are or it's been changed last week and what's the new phone number or I know I should do, what's that test called? I know it's a well score, is it? But what is it exactly? All of that information that allows me to do my job better is all in one place. Okay. And um, that, I mean, that sounds, that sounds amazing to to be honest, but but one of the reasons I love doing the show is, is you, you know, we, we, We've had so many companies on. I mean, we've had, you know, 30, 30, 30, this is my 34th, 35th show, something like that. And there are companies like DemDX where the the problem that they solve is is complex in a way that people don't really realize, in, in, particularly with healthcare, because people have such a huge amount of faith, rightly so, in clinicians, and but they don't necessarily realize all of the complications that go with all of that information and decisions and protocols and you know guidelines and everything that that clinician has to store in their head um and presumably solutions like yours part of it is is about providing um a way of of, i guess a sort of a a a method to to reduce the stress within clinicians you know that that kind of that mental burden must must be extremely stressful to have to maintain the entire time I, i would imagine yeah uh, absolutely. So the benefits is so they can train on the job. So they also get CPD sort of portfolio support. So as they're using the platform, they're actually improving their training, which is really important. So we're investing in the workforce. But you're right, all of that. Uh, so they feel they feel more confident in their decision making. But also you've got sort of wider 
healthcare benefits, which is, you know, there's a huge amount of variation between levels of experience or there's a huge variation if I'm a locum coming in and I might not know what the local, you know, the local pathways are. Um, sometimes looking these things up take time. So I might know it, but I have to then find out what the right website is and look it up. So we bring kind of a holistic benefit so at the heart of it it's the patient and the clinician the user um, but around that you get all of these other sort of benefits and externalities that are positive which is you know greater adherence to guidelines uh, greater consistency of care delivery um, you know operational savings etc etc yeah I mean it makes sense in a world where I mean not everyone listening might know what like a pathway is but I don't know whether you could just explain just you know like what I mean I yeah why don't you explain what kind of yeah. a pathway what does that mean we've had it before on the show but I always like to try and make sure that we we're, we're clear with everyone and not throwing jargon around that, that we all understand but maybe some people I, listening don't. I definitely fall into the too much jargon category so a pathway is uh, very simply, if A plus B, then that should equal C. But if A plus Z, it equals W. Right. So it's about collecting bits of information that you then put together and decide what's the best thing for the patient. Right. And as you with your intro, you've got we've got 1.5 million different pathways. You can imagine the computations between things that are specific to the patients or their history, and then what you might find when you're assessing them physically hmm. uh, and then what's what are sort of uh, guidelines which sets all of these different parameters you can imagine how quickly it gets complicated yeah massively complicated um and like i'm always interested when when we have founders on how close is mdx now to what you what, what you thought it might be when you you had that epiphany moment when you realized with the consultants and the trainees and the so on that no one could really remember all of this list of stuff because like, that's still quite as a massive leap, right? From where you are now to like where, you, where when you had that idea. So like, what was that journey like? So um, at its heart, originally, um, we we were a training platform, which in, in some ways we still are at the heart of it. It's still a training platform. But originally the idea was to create, because it was, I still had my sort of student hat on um, or, you know, doctor trainee hat on. So uh, the idea was say, we know how hard this is to train to get this, these kind of reflexes and these associations in your own, you know, uh, these patterns. Uh, so initially, MDX and the platform was built to help train, to tra- help train future future healthcare workers on those patterns and, and how to get them to be kind of down pat. Um and and it was you know it, it still has as a, because as I said we still people using it can is, is still getting training from it, um, but what was interesting was that there was there was more we got pulled you know like all these things when you're doing a startup and you have an idea and then sort of you realize that when you're starting to talk to users that certain users are more enthusiastic than others or more receptive than others. Um, and we found that actually there was a greater urgency and a greater appetite and a, a, and a greater sort of enthusiasm for those actually in the clinical setting mm. than actually the students. Um, 
and even though there's a move within education to do what's called problem-based learning so rather than saying right I'm now going to tell you everything there is about about pneumonia or subarachnoid hemorrhage you know I'll tell you the epidemiology the etiology the pathophysiology and then kind of the treatment or whatever now it's okay someone comes in with a headache or a cough so this move it starts with a problem and then you work it through exactly so even though there's a move now across the healthcare training towards what's called problem-based where you start it's, it's complementary it's not with they don't throw away with all the theory but students and I speak as one historically not so long ago if you think yeah. <laughs> um is we care about passing exams I mean we care about being a good physician but our need number one is passing those exams yeah. the need number one for the clinician with a patient in front of them is to get things right so the the pull of what we were offering was far stronger with the actual the clinic the real clinical world um than it was actually in the in the training student world and of course i'm delighted because it's my way of feeling that i'm still part of that community is because i'm working with them so i can kind of you know i can sit like i am now in in a healthcare center or in a you know in a hospital and still feel still pretend like i'm a doctor still part of it um and so when you when you began did you focus on a particular disease area or a particular condition or was it to how, how did you work out to go from like zero pathways to over 1.5 million pathways so this is probably slightly insane but because uh initially it was to be for training and because initially we were approaching nursing schools and medical schools we had to offer everything so actually, rather, rather than say quite sensibly, as you're alluding to, say, let's start with, I don't know, common pathway like spiritual problems or cardiac problems for the school that doesn't really help them. They want if they're going to partner yeah. with you, they want it's you all to or nothing. Them kind of all or nothing so hence you know a lot of heavy lifting at the upfront of of the company in getting some of those key pathways done but you know it does mean that i mean it, it does mean that today that heavy lifting is done and as you mentioned the partnership with harvard uh, it was medical faculty they've tested and validated the path pathways in terms of accuracy um so it means that now we can really help with with people on the ground in the community where anything can present right you can't yeah. go i mean i've said this before but you can't you can't say well we're great and we can partner with you but we can only deal with kind of ear problems we're not great on kind of you know toe problems you know it doesn't kind yeah. of doesn't really doesn't really yeah yeah you need a yeah you need another platform for the toes we're really more of like an upper body type of right yeah it doesn't quite cut it for the clinician no i can see that's not really going to go very well down with the the local yeah so what was slightly ambitious to begin with is now standing us in good stead today. Okay, well, that's good. Um, that seems like very kind of insightful, get the heavy lifting out of the way at the beginning. Um, what I know it probably is really hard, but have you managed to quantify this kind of scale of the problem that you're, that you're solving in any way, shape or form? Like, you know, the, the, the bad first diagnosis, delayed treatment, you know, wrong treatment. I don't know how you kind of think about it, but what, what's clear on a common sense basis is what you're doing makes so much common sense. O- obviously, it's like a massive step up than just relying on people to remember ever increasing lists of information and trusting them to be able to parse that accurately when they're under stress, extremely tired, so on and so forth. But I'm just interested, is there, what's the scale of the issue at hand, really? So, um 
so we, we um, so the reason I hesitate is because I want to give you a little sort of quote that I had. So obviously Please. we're building up this evidence base, which is absolutely critical, particularly if you're then selling into a, a cash constrained uh, entity such as an NHS. They need to have evidence of effectiveness and operational gains and mm-hmm. you know improved quality of care. Um, and so we work with uh, various different partners and stakeholders in the academia to help validate this because obviously it has to be validated at arm's length. And I yeah, was, they, they, funnily enough, they won't just accept your own internal validation. No, right. Exactly. <laughs> so we, were, we were talking to a professor of health economics uh, because they'll probably be the ones, this is one partner who will be assessing kind of the output. And uh, she was looking at it. She's like, oh, it's brilliant. She said that. But surely this is just a no brainer. <laughs> And I was like, wouldn't you think, right? You yeah. know, yeah, but it's it's then it but that's but that's the rub, right? It's moving yeah, exactly. from this is a no-brainer uh, to here's exactly. the data. That's hard. Exactly. So to answer your question in a in a in a slightly more serious way, is we've had to unpick it. Um so what we've done is we've we've identified areas that it can contribute and we've then built the evidence around that. So um as I said, we're sort of specialist agnostic so we've worked with Moorfield and we've worked closely with them to prove that with nurse practitioners using our platform they can take on more clinic more autonomy more clinical responsibility we've shown again all evidence-based uh, about uh, you know uh, preparing the paper to be published uh, that patient time has been reduced by 10 percent uh, as I said they're taking on more investigations consultant time has been saved quite significantly right. it's a it's a notional saving because um it's not like they go and have a longer tea break, but they can reallocate their time to more complex cases. Um, yeah. So all that's been being sort of has been assessed, uh, as you said, at arm's length independently and validated. And the same when we're working in a community where you've got uh, district nurses and, and community teams using it, uh, it's being assessed in terms of their confidence level so that you know it's it's important as you said at the beginning you know it reduces their stress so we do quantitative demonstrations of operational benefits but also qualitative okay. so you know we, we 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 do structured interviews and surveys you know has this helped you has this made you more confident um has it made you less stressed even is one of the, the questions but then so that all of that is an important point in terms of investing in the workforce um and then some of the quantitative measures which is are you able to see more patients are you not referring on to the gp quite so much um is 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 the is the decisions being made consistent irrespective of level of of experience i yeah again like i said it's a no-brainer but i understand that the process from saying it's a no-brainer and everyone agreeing conceptually it is to to proving that is 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 not the easiest it's not the easiest so uh, what I've, out of interest if uh, what has been the biggest kind of pushback? If Sorry, I'll ask it a different way. What's generally the reaction from clinicians or, or people that you show this to? You know, I know there'll be a range, but, but broadly speaking, what, what's the kind of feedback on the ground? I know you've got lots of partnerships already in the NHS, so it must be going pretty well. But yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think also it's quite biased because obviously I'm talking to people who are already interested, uh, you know. So, I mean, well, that's not, but, you know, either I don't, we don't get a response, which is, that's their answer mm. uh, but also those that do engage with us there's always there's it's already biased because they've probably got an element of, of interest curiosity and, and like in innovations or, or digital but frankly if I talk specifically actually about the NHS um, it's unbelievably welcoming and receptive because 
they are, you know, you, every headline even today is all about staff shortages, workforce crisis, um, yeah. you know, demand, et cetera, et cetera, through the roof. And anything that can support the workforce, but also deliver better care, they're interested in. Whether they then take it on or adopt it or trial it, you know, is, is, is something else. But generally, I was asked the other day about, well, you know, is, do they feel threatened or, you know, does that feel somehow they don't know enough? I think overwhelming and it's it's across all levels of experience, anything that can make the patient safer and make them feel they can, they, you know, they're not missing something is, is I think, different from other industries. And maybe also it's evolved over time. It's a less, less uh, conservative industry. Yeah, no, I would agree. And I think that, you know, the NHS, Obviously, it's not one amorphous mass. It's, it's, yeah, it's lots of different bits, and you know, it's a ridiculously large organisation. Um, but they've done a huge amount, I think, in investing in early stage health tech businesses. You know, they've got the Digital Health London Accelerator that we're on, um, the, the National Innovation Accelerator. They've got the Clinical Entrepreneurship Program. You know, they've also made it pretty clear, kind of like you said, that they're interested in talking to anybody with any kind of digital health solution that they think can help. Now it's not to say that they're going to take it on, but you know, their ears are open and the lights are burning brightly for them to actually sit down and, and hear what you've got to say, I think at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. You, you've lived through that as well. Good. Well, look, we've got to do another quick break, but we will be back in two minutes. UK health radio. The station that makes you feel good. Galar Light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe, from the sun and stars. Now, Tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher, has created the world's only scalar light healing system, a system that can bring long-distance healing and wellness to humans, pets, and plants via a photograph. Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com. Or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. Shields like masks are top of mind right now. But did you know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long, so your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects you. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Hi, welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with Lauren Gresser, CEO of Dem DX. So, Lauren, I just one thing I want to ask is, would anyone... That your, your platform, DemDX, is clinician-facing, so it's not like a patient would ever necessarily interact with it. Is that correct, or is that is that wrong? No, that's absolutely correct. Okay, so it might be that many listeners, some listeners have already kind of been treated with by clinicians using DemDX, and they just wouldn't necessarily have, like, known. Yeah. Okay, cool. And what, um, with, with, the, with the platform Dem, DemDX, is it that the how different is it to, you know, the sort of Babylon type sort of, you know, um, uh, like I would call them sort of symptom checkers, you know, symptom bot type things. 
I assume it's significantly more sophisticated and more clinician focused, but like, I think maybe some listeners will probably be familiar with them where you go on and you say, I have a headache. And then it asks you different questions and it sort of goes backwards and forwards. And a lot of the time it ends up with saying, you should call a doctor. So, you know, that's not necessarily the most helpful, but how, how would it differentiate itself from, from, from that? Um, so I think it's, so the companies that are sort of patient facing um, first, it's they've, well, in Babylon's case, and maybe in some of the others, is they're trying to replicate a conversation. So they're trying to replace as if they, as if you're talking to a doctor. So the questions they ask is very much sort of conversational, and it's kind of back and forth and back and forth. Um, and the language they use um, is is obviously very conversational. And then also it stops at the point of the history. Okay. So. Uh, and you can do, do do a lot with history, hence you know the success of teletriage, etc. But what we do is we we prioritise the questions to help with the triage, but we give a lot more information. The language is a lot more sophisticated, and as you can imagine, um, it goes further along. So if you where we where we sort of come in is once I've decided to go to the doctor they will take that exchange and that um, conversation much further. So they will then start, you know, asking you slightly more specific questions. They might um, ask you, they might then do an assessment um, and it could be, you know, a scoring system, let's say, I don't know, uh, you know, um, so it could be I'm, uh, I'm depressed. So there's a particular questionnaire that I need to refer to. And then, we have embedded onto our platform the local guidelines. So once I've ascertained, well, let's take lower back pain. It's quite common. Once I've ruled out all the key things, I then have got on my platform a what I should have done from a national perspective, ruled out anything sinister. But then locally, I can see where I should send that patient. So it means that whereas before maybe I was referring on to a more senior a staff member or a GP, I can now make that referral myself and feel confident that the whole workup and referrals of the right, you know, I've covered all the right bases. Right. Um, okay. So it's 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 a lot. Yeah, there's a more depth to the exchange than which you which you'd expect because it's clinician facing. I think. Yeah. It, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you, you're working across the NHS. You obviously have a partnership with Harvard Medical School. What kind of other areas markets? you know, partners are you sort of looking at or, or thinking about or, yeah, what, what does that kind of all look like? Um, so uh, so we're still, I mean, obviously we're UK-based and we really want to sort of consolidate our, our partnerships within the NHS. So that's kind of our sort of six to 12 months, if not longer, <laughs> most likely will take longer. But, you know, uh, certainly our focus for the next, for the, for the you know, short to medium term. And then obviously, as you've kind of alluded to this is a global problem so the you know it's it's not just the nhs that's having this problem of an aging population kind of crazy backlog post-covid and just not all senior physicians i mean a obviously in more developed areas of the world there literally are no doctors and where there are doctors in many health systems there aren't enough of them or they're too expensive um so we do see this as very much a you know a force for good globally in terms of democratizing access to healthcare and quality healthcare and part of what we're proud of is that we've had an unbelievably generous cohort of advisors of clinical advisors um that have helped 
map these pathways. And so the point is they can, you know, anyone who accesses these platforms has the clinical reasoning and thought process of some of the leaders uh, in the world. So what I'm saying is I could be, I could be in Rwanda, in fact, we did a study with the University of Rwanda, I could be a, an optometrist or a nurse, district nurse, community nurse in, in Rwanda, and someone's got an eye problem, and I'm accessing that thought process, those pathways have been set by, you know, some leading right. ophthalmologist in Moorfield, you know, so right. it's just a fantastic. That seems, that seems really exciting. Yeah, it's a great vehicle for sort of democratizing health knowledge. Um, but in terms of our sort of commercial markets, the US is a very attractive one. A, there's the language, which is common, um, but also they've got slightly underinvested. I mean, it's a, it's a particular, it's a very particular healthcare system, but they've got an underinvested sort of family physician, if you will, or commute primary care equivalent. Uh, so this could, could, could slot in there. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you've been on the journey for, for a few years now with, with MDX. What are the key things, the key lessons that you think that you've taken from it so far? Um, I should I should definitely ask you this. This has to be a question right back at you. <laughs> sure. No, you have to go first, though, because that's how the show works. Ah, OK. Um, so so the question is, like, what would be my learning? So, yeah, you can. And it can be anything. Could be practical, could be emotional, uh, could be, I don't know, could be all kinds of different things. So something that we did do, but maybe not early enough is and we're doing a lot of it now is being very close to the users so you know you can be quite sort of uh, very visionary and have a clear kind of idea in your head and you're so passionate by that that's what they sort of there's tons of books around it where I sort of build the product for the users not not for the product itself type thing mm-hmm. you know um and i think we probably suffered at the beginning of being a bit too visionary and not getting at the grassroots early enough uh, but there's but it's a chicken and egg because part of it is you kind of need something that's good enough for people to understand how it's to be used for them to actually give feedback. So yeah, you know there can be a delay in that. Um, and yeah, I think I mean I, th- these are things that you all your listeners will have heard a thousand times before. But definitely it has to be a passion. You know you can't can't I, I don't think you can succeed as an entrepreneur. You know selling pizzas. Uh, you know, it, it, particularly an innovation, I should say. So you can yeah. be a very successful business person, you know, creating the best pizzas or the best coffee or, I don't know, whatever. Uh, but if you're an innovation, the, the idea has to really sort of spur you on because it's, it, it's, it's, it's what's interesting with innovation is for all of us, and I, again, I include you in this, but it's, it's not just about building a commercial business. It's about almost creating a market. And, and you know, that's a double whammy, right? Yeah, it's exciting. No, it's an extra challenge. No, I would agree. I would agree with all of that. I think that, yeah, I think it's with, within within health tech. There are very few people that I know within the industry, within within health tech or, or med tech, who aren't driven by some kind of personal mission. You know, that don't that don't have that very clear mission, and it's it's beyond you know making money and doing all that kind of stuff. It's it's sort of almost always separate to that, and sometimes it's very personal. Sometimes it's more of a global kind of you know drive to to solve massive problems sometimes it's both and i think that that the, the issue you know there's lots of amazing things about working in, in health tech you know you you get up every day and you know that you're doing something to help the world however niche 
that might be, but you're you're indisputably trying to make the world a better place in 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 your in your way in in your kind of you know area of the of the puzzle in your piece of the puzzle. Um, the issues are though starting a business in this space is really quite difficult because you you there's you can't just throw something together and you know get traction right like you might be able to do in, in you can do in many other kind of commercial sectors um you know you can get something together you can get some users you can get some products up there you can kind of get going and you can sort of you know show some traction learn as you go fix things update things all that kind of stuff and that obviously helps massively with the fundraising journey because you can demonstrate traction and you can massage what that looks like and you can sort of sell this narrative and you can show like a graph where growth is going up and all that kind of good stuff whereas with the highly innovative businesses particularly in health the health tech you know it, it takes a while to get that traction and so having access to and, and sort of belief from, you know, a group of supporters, investors, advisors, you know, is, is absolutely critical as well as having um, a mission internally in the, in the business, um, particularly in the senior team, but also throughout the business that you're, you know, the problem that you're trying to solve. You're all, you all believe that that is a problem that's, that's worth getting out of bed for and, you know, staying late for and working on the weekend for, and um, that you you found a group of people that will support you through the period of time where you're innovating, you're creating prior to when you can launch and then hopefully scale very, very quickly. So, yeah, I think that that, that for me is critical. And then from the kind of the personal stuff, the lessons that really I try and hold true to, but, you know, everyone deviates. But is, is I, I've spent a lot of time over the last few years reading a lot about the Stoics. So, you know, Epictetus, Seneca, uh, Marcus Aurelius all that kind of stuff which is now a lot more lot more like a la mode now than it was a few years ago but you know there's quite a lot in there I think that's valuable for entrepreneurs you know there's a lot in there around opportunity you know the the impediment to action becomes the action you know the the, the life is not around like life is not about avoiding problems it's like the, the purpose of life is not the avoidance of problems it's the acceptance that problems are going to hit you and it's how you deal with them and I think that there's no kind of truer ref- representation of that than being in a startup that there are going to be problems like you are doing something for the first time you know you 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 are doing this literally for the first time no one's ever done it before so there are going to be problems and it's not you know it's not about feeling negative about the fact that you had a problem it's about how do you solve that problem in the quickest most efficient way and just and move on basically but that's that's kind of what i think anyway yeah, very interesting. Also, my son is educating me on Seneca. It's his, his, his favourite sort of leader stroke philosopher. So I've had, I, I completely agree yeah. with you. The moral letters. That's what yeah. I'm on. Moral <laughs> yeah, letters of Seneca. True. So, I mean, that's, and that's definitely, we're all, that's definitely a journey for us all personally. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's limited to entrepreneurs. <laughs> no, no, I'd agree. So um, we've only got, we've got a few minutes left and I definitely want to touch on this concept of women in technology, partly because we, my co-founder and your chief medical officer are competing, not to the death, hopefully, but for the, for this women in technology award. Whatever happens, <laughs> it will be a celebration. Yeah, exactly. It's a celebration of, of, of women in technology, whoever wins. It's a win for the, it's a win for the, for the and, team. And to quote Seneca, from that perspective, you know, from from my perspective, I think we've already won because we have. Well, both your co-founder and my medical director are basically the finalists. So I think it's yeah. uh, five. So from you know the whole world, thousands of applicants. I mean, it's a crazy achievement. So I yeah, think it's really awesome. They're on the pedestal. So I think yeah. it's a mutual congratulations. I think it's I'm, awesome for them and great for the companies. I would I would agree. 
Um, and so how, how good or bad do you think the health tech industry in general is about sort of promoting, supporting women in the industry? And if, if not, what more could it do, do you think? So, um, so I think it's really good. Um, so I'm glad that you're sort of raising it. And I think it's really good that it's part of the conversation now. And, you know, and, and there's a consciousness about it, because I have to say quite candidly, I probably didn't even think about it it was kind of in my environment you know certain sort of selections or biases I I just hadn't even I myself wasn't even honing in on um I mean for my day-to-day interestingly the the healthcare profession is largely you know there's a very very good representation of women so uh in my day-to-day when I'm working with clinics it's it's really not you know not there, but where it is there is definitely, as you say, is around the kind of the well, where I've felt it the most is around the funding. Yeah. And and I think not that I want to say it's hard for, for, for femtech, but I think femtech and healthcare is like a, a double whammy because I think there are a lot if I'm a VC or if I'm looking to invest potentially um or, or back something, uh, you know, healthcare is a pretty there are some reasons to be attractive, but it, there are other industries that have faster growth and faster returns. There are counter benefits of being healthcare, obviously, that it's continuous and less volatile. But even within healthcare sector, uh, both you and I have chosen kind of the B2B selling to clinics, because even within the healthcare sector, you've got loads of companies that then promote into the individual. Mm. So all that to say, it's really good that from the funding perspective, there's a bit more of a, of a light shining on it and that we can have a conversation to educate ourselves as women as much about what that where our own internal biases are and try and correct them as for other people yeah i would agree with i would agree with all of that i think it's it's about trying to shine as many spotlights on it as possible so you know awards grants you know specific investor related events you know there's there's some specific fem femtech female founder investment portfolio sort of businesses and things out there which i think are you know, I think I think are good. Although my my my, my co-founder was on one of them, and um, yeah, she was the only woman that presented at one of these pitching events at the at the women's pitching hey. event. She was the only woman. They had like three other blokes presenting their companies, which I kind of was like, what on earth is that about? It's slightly counterintuitive, but as you say, yeah. the whole networking I think is very important. Sorry, that like connecting, you know, talking to other women founders in across different industries, learning it from them. And just having that sharing has been for me, because I was in the women in innovation a few years back when it first launched. And that was just fantastic the networking. Big shout out to Innovate UK and Women in Innovation. Yeah. If anyone's listening inspired, please do apply and, and feel free yeah, to the- contact me if you want any help. We well, so we're that we're actually applying for that grant, I think, right now. So if anyone else is good luck, you know. Um yeah, we're trying to figure out that out right now. Excellent. Cool. Well, look, we've reached the end of the show. Lauren, great show. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. Wish you and the, and the team at DemDX all the best. Obviously, we, we know each other outside of the show, so we you know it'll be, it'll be great to catch up with you again. But yeah, thanks for coming on, and we'd love to have you back on you know at some point to hear all about your growth in the next six to 12 months. Well, thank you to you both for organizing this, including me, and uh, yeah, delighted to be connected. Good. Well, look, thanks everyone for listening and we will be back again next week with another great show.